All right. Well, good morning, Seacoast. Good morning. Good to be with you as always. Enjoy to enjoy that music and just being able to share with one another. And and uh, yeah, it's good. Thank you, band. They're already gone. But all right. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Oh, there you are, Paige. I thought you went back there. So we always appreciate your leading and helping us just get in the right uh, kind of focus our hearts a little. I love it. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra chapter 4. Uh, if uh, that sounds kind of strange place to go for you, um, it is in there. It's in Bible called the book of Ezra. And uh, you are always welcome to use a, a digital Bible. If you have a tablet or a phone, feel free to pull that out. That's okay as well. But uh, we also still believe in the hard copy as well. So uh, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 4. We've been in the middle of a series through this book and it's somewhat uh, an obscure book, but one of the reasons why we've been studying it is because we believe that we can learn about how God was interacting with his community of faith in this point of time in history, and we learn about his ways and his plans and his character, and through that, it gives us application for our lives today. So uh, that's one of the reasons we're going into to this book. So we'll be, in just a moment, getting to Ezra chapter 4. You know, the other day I was, I was just thinking about, I have uh, three kids, uh, one in junior high, one in high school, and one in elementary school. So I have three different schools right now and uh, different ages, and it's very different. But my oldest one now who's in high school is a junior in high school. It, it's, sometimes when I look at him, it, it's, it's kind of hard to believe, and many of you have already been at this point where we're at in our lives, to look at him and think, well, this guy's getting closer to uh, being the age where we can kick him out of the house. And so... I mean, where he's uh, growing older and maybe will leave the house at some point in the next 10 to 15 years. And, um, but it's kind of weird as a parent to be there and to see your kids getting to that phase. Because sometimes I look at them, I still feel like they should all be in elementary school. They should all be these little kids who don't have anything to do on Friday, but hang out with us. And here they are getting older. And, and I was thinking about it, and one of the things that we say often in parenting, and maybe you have said it or someone has said it to you, is there's times when we ask them to do something, we have them you know, go through something, and we say, this is for your own good. <laughs> or trust me, this will help you later on in life. I don't know, any parents there have been saying that ever, say that? Yeah, and they just look at you like, yeah, right. Um, but I find myself saying that because we know that sometimes the most important lessons that we can learn, they don't come easy. And not that it always has to be painful, but it takes work. Um, I was thinking of when my oldest started high school, he decided he wanted to be a water polo player. So he went, never played before, but decided to play water polo. And that's a really tough sport. I mean, not only do you swim back and forth the entire game, but when you're not swimming back and forth, you're, you're treading water. You don't, you don't get to put your feet on the ground and rest. And, and I was remembering when we first got married, we lived in a, an apartment that had this pool. And I used to work out, and then I would say, like, I'm going to start swimming laps to get in really good shape. And I'd do, like, two laps and then have to go throw up in the bushes, you know. So, and, and I, sorry, I was a little too far. But, um, so I think, how could you play water polo? But I remember dropping him off at his very first practice, and he was excited to go. He went to practice. I picked him up at the end of it, and he just looked at me, and he had this, like, white look on his face, kind of like, Dad, that was so hard. It was so hard. I go, I know, but it'll get, it'll get better, trust me. And then the next day, he looked at me, he's like, ah, I don't think I want to go back. But we do have a rule in the house, you can never quit anything. So um, I brought him back the next day and threw him in the pool, and... Um, but it was a hard process, and I kept saying, like, it's going to get, it'll get easier if course is difficult. 
the first week. You've never done this. And he went, and, he, and after a couple weeks, it was getting better and better and easier. And to the point where now, you know, he's a junior. He made the varsity team, and he's playing. And, 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 but he knew it took a lot of work to get to that point, and it still takes a lot of work. But nothing comes easy. And I even look at, I, I have to confess something. I'll confess something to all of you. When I look at high school water polo players, these high school boy water polo players, I'm totally jealous of their washboard stomachs. That's just, I mean, they have zero body fat. They just, he, he works out for like two hours in the pool, comes home and eats a whole pizza. And it's like, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. That is so fantastic. And so we were actually talking about that one day. I said, I, you know, I would love to, to get in the shape you're getting into. We were driving to practice and and I just don't have the discipline. I need someone to tell me to do all these things that your coach is telling you to do that would help me. And so we were driving and I told him, but the good news is I talked to your coach and he said, as long as I wear a Speedo, I can work out with the team. <laughs> and I had to actually keep him from jumping out of the car. <laughs> and I don't know if it was more terrifying to my son or my wife, the picture of me in a Speedo, but, but uh, <laughs> that was a, a proud parenting moment to see how scared he really thought I was serious. But the point is this, that nothing comes easy. You have to work if you want to see the results. And we're at a point in this book of Ezra where God has called the people to go back and rebuild their lives. He's taken them from a point of exile and said, return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and restart your lives as a kingdom. And it's very easy for us to think perhaps that, well, if God's asking them to do it, the road is going to be easy. But starting here in chapter 4, we start to see that it wasn't an easy road. We start to see the opposition that they face. But when they face the opposition, just as it takes hard work for anything, the Israelites learn and grow through it. And today what we want to do is look at their opposition and see what about God's character and his plans are they learning through these difficult times. Because we here at Seacoast do not believe, we believe that following Jesus is the best way to live. But we don't believe that just because you're a follower that life is promised to be easy from that point on. In fact, Jesus said the road is narrow. It's a tough road, but it's also the best road to take. And so we want to look at this today and learn how do we learn through the opposition and tough times that we face. So that's the point of this morning. So pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you so much again for this morning. I thank you for your love, for your, your grace. I thank you that even along our journeys that we kind of run into rough times sometimes, sometimes because of our own decisions, sometimes because of others. But God, you never leave us in that. And so we're grateful for him. And uh, Lord, I ask this morning that you'd speak to every one of us here. Help us grow. Help us have a bigger understanding of who you are and what your plans for your people are. Um, so we thank you and give you this time. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Ezra, chapter 4. And again, just to get us up to speed, if you haven't been with us uh, for a couple weeks, is Israel, the people of Israel were taken into exile. They were left from their land. They were taken by what's called the Babylonians. And they were, King Nebuchadnezzar took them from Jerusalem, destroyed their temple, destroyed their walls, and said, you no longer can be in this place as he conquered their kingdom. Later on, the Persian Empire rose up, and now the Persian Empire is over the entire region. And a guy named King Cyrus was the first king of this Persian Empire, who he sends the Israelites back. He issues a decree and says, go back and build your temple, build your walls, restart your lives. So we, we kind of looked at that story to this point. 
As they went back, we found that the very first thing they did, they looked around and they feared the people, so they built an altar to the Lord. And in our context, essentially what they were doing was saying, we're looking around at our lives and we know the very first most important thing we can do is reorient our lives around the worship of our God. We need to say everything else that's calling for our attention, everything else that's distracting us is secondary. And the most important first step we can be as a community that's being renewed is to get our focus on our worship of our God. So they built the altar. The next thing we saw is they laid the foundation of the temple. We talked about it last week. And they sang the song that we sang today where they said, God, you are good and your faithfulness or your loving kindness endures forever. And it was a reminder. What that was was a call to remember the past, remember how God has been good to them time and time again. And we talked about as a a church today, we want to constantly be reminded of how God has been good to us both collectively as a church and individually, for what Christ has done, and and even in the ways that he's moving in our midst. So we want to remember the goodness of what God has done, his faithfulness, and then also that phrase, your loving kindness endures forever, is a call to remember that God's grace was poured out, it was his doing, and it was because of his goodness. So his loving kindness endures forever is a sign of being a people who are called by God because of who he is, not because of what we have done. And so that's what they did when they rededicated the foundation of the temple. They remembered his goodness and remembered that they were called and part of his covenant community. So now this week we're in chapter four and we're gonna read the first seven verses. So join with me as we read these. Starts off and says, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so Judah and Benjamin are essentially, they're they're the nation of Israel right now. They're the two tribes that are left, have returned. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said, let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel, said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So just to get you up to speed here is... The picture is the people of Israel returned and it says their enemies came to them and said, hey, we, we worship the same God. Let us build with you and help you do what you're going to do. Now, who are those enemies? Most of our most scholars believe that they, these are people who um, have Jewish uh, blood, so they are probably along the line, but it's most likely what we know of today as the Samaritans. And uh, in the time of Jesus, we know that there's great animosity between the Samaritans and and the nation of Israel, and these are most likely the ancestors or the beginning of the Samaritan people. And they were people who were Jewish followers who adopted a lot of other uh, beliefs and practices and and kind of were mixed in their following. Uh, They didn't have this pure faith as they follow Yahweh. So, And they were opposed to this return of the Israelites. So the first thing they do is they approach and say, hey, we, we worship the same God, so we'll build with you. We'll get back to that in a moment. Now, verse 4. So the people of the land then discouraged the people of Judah, and they frightened them from building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, 
Bishlam, Mithradath, and Tabil and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Don't you feel super spiritually enlightened after that? <laughs> I mean, I could just stop right there and you go home and say, wow, that was so amazing hearing all those names. Yes, when we get to a portion of scripture like this, the tendency is, and it is my tendency to read it and just think, okay, I, I powered through that. Thanks, Lord. I don't ever want to have to read that again. But we want to pause and we're just going to use these verses today to ask the question, why is this in Scripture? Why is the writer here, who we believe is Ezra, why did he include this? Why is it important? And there's a couple things that we need to understand of what's happening here. And I'm going to bring up a graphic here for you and it's, it's a little bit of a timeline for those of you who like to go a little deeper and understand what's happening and those of you, if you have notes, uh, if you took one of our, our outlines today, it's in there for you as well. Now, the reason I want to show you this is because we want to be a people who don't just read Scripture here on Sunday morning. We want to encourage you throughout the week to engage and orient your lives around Scripture. And there may be times when you read something and you just say what you probably just said and looked at it and went, okay, thank you very much for all that info. But we want to learn how to interact with that. Now, one thing that has happened in this small section is the writer mentioned four different kings. And when he mentioned four different kings, we need to understand that he's putting a historic context around this story. He's trying to let the readers know the, the timeline, or at least the time period that he's talking about. And he mentions everyone from King Cyrus who was started and issued his first decree in about 539 all the way to this king called Artaxerxes who was on the throne all the way to 432. So you can see it's a hundred year period of time mentioned in seven verses. And the point of this is he want, the author here wants us to understand that during this hundred years of the nation of Israel rebuilding their, their community, they were facing opposition. That it was a hundred year process to get to where they were. And if you can see here, the, the first section of the temple was being rebuilt. It was a period of about 20, a little more than 20 years to rebuild the temple. So maybe it was a two year building project, but for whatever reason, it took 20 years. This actually is evidence. These people are the, the um, ancestors of Caltrans. So, um, so a two year project extends to 20 years and now they build our roads in our country. So, um, but yeah, so we know that the temple being rebuilt was a 20-year process. And that's when we read about Cyrus to Darius, as he says in that first few verses. It took nearly 20 years. There actually was another king in there, but he didn't mention him. So that was a period. And then we had a gap of almost 57 years until Ezra shows up on the scene. When Ezra shows up on the scene, he starts enacting some spiritual reforms, which we'll get to towards the end of this series. And then there's another gap, and a guy named Nehemiah, who is a governor, who if you look one book over in your Bibles, there's a book called Nehemiah. It used to be combined with Ezra, by the way. It used to be one book. And that is when they're rebuilding the walls of the city. Now, I know for some of you that's incredibly interesting, and for some of you, you've been checked out for two minutes. Come, time to come back. <laughs> the point here is that this process that God had them on was a long one hundred years of rebuilding their lives. And what we will find, not just in this chapter 4, but we see it in chapter 5, 6, 7, we see it in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, is they kept facing opposition to their plans. And so what we really want to focus on today 
is not necessarily this timeline. It's just important to understand the author here is jumping all over the place in his writing. But the point is he wants us to understand how do we deal with difficult times that pop up as a community of faith? How is God showing himself to be faithful in the midst of this? What can you learn from it? So let's go back to the text and find something we can learn. First of all, notice there's a couple different types of opposition they faced. The first one was this. It was what I call just a subtle opposition. And it's in the end of verse 2, where the enemies come up to him and say, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. We've been sacrificing to him since we were brought up here. So the first thing is this. They came in, and that sounds good, doesn't it? When I read that, I thought, why would you be upset about that? They want to help you build. You might actually get this thing done. That sounds great. But the response of the Israelites showed that there's more to the story than we understand. Their response was, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. Now, this had nothing to do with a division just because they were not like them. This had to do with they weren't serving the same God and they knew it. And there was a temptation to get the project done, but to compromise their faith. It was a very subtle opposition that they first faced. Very subtle. I think of our lives today. What are the subtle oppositions that we face? It might be the temptation to compromise some teachings in Scripture just to be a little more culturally relevant. It might be the temptation to try to update what Scripture teaches so that people don't look at us and say you're crazy or you're extreme or you're out of touch. It could even be something like a church focusing on things that God doesn't want us to focus on. It might be good things, but it distracts us from the mission he's called us to of helping people experience life in Christ. And so there's very subtle types of opposition that you may face, and those are all collective. How about in your own individual life? The subtle oppositions might be to adopt some other beliefs or other ways that kind of compromise who you are and what you know about truth. It can be very subtle and it sneaks up. Then there's the more direct. After they said, no, you're, you're not going to build with us, look at their response. So the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and they frightened them from building. We read later in Nehemiah as they frightened them when they're building their walls, the people, the Israelites actually had to build their walls while they had a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other, Scripture tells us. So they were defending themselves because they were actually having their very lives threatened. So they started frightening them. And then look at this. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So they hired lobbyists to go against them. (laughs) Right there. They hired people to counsel against them to the king. A very direct opposition. This is what I would say are the more obvious things where people are coming directly at them and saying, we don't like what you're up to. We don't want to see your God be honored. We don't want to see the people of God rise up and follow his way. So they're coming directly against them. Those are the two types of opposition that we see here. Now, what do you, how do you respond when that happens? How do we respond? Let me ask you, or let me just suggest a few things. The first response could be, you can get discouraged and give up. <laughs> That's one way. You can just say, this is too hard, I'm done. And it's sad to say there's a lot of people who are followers of Christ who've run into hard times and just said, I can't take it anymore. It's too difficult. I remember when a family member of mine, after uh, losing uh, a second loved one, (laughs) 
It was my grandmother. I still remember. She said after her second son had died, she lost two. She just said, I'm done. I can't believe in this God anymore. Sometimes that's just hard. You can give up. It could be one response. And I understand. And the good news is I talked to her a week before she died and she said, I've made my peace with God. I'm ready now. And so God took this 15-year journey to bring her back. It took a long time. But so one response is discouragement and to give up. The other response is we can stop and say, what do, we, what do we learn about God? And we can actually fall more in love and have a deeper commitment to who our God is in the face of this opposition. And I believe that that's what happened with the Israelites. See, when they were living in exile, the point of it was this, that God was teaching them two things, that one, he is sovereign, and two, he has a plan for his people. The first thing is this, when we face opposition, it teaches us that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he ultimately is over all of the junk that happens in this world. And the people of Israel were faced to confront that truth. And they had to come with that belief, do we believe that God is in control? When they returned to the land and faced opposition, they were tempted to walk away and not believe it. But they had to stop and say, can we still believe that God is in control? That he's sovereign. Does a community of faith today ever face this decision still? You know, we look around and we are in that beautiful election season. <laughs> Do you think there's some feeling out there that maybe things are out of control? You see, I believe right now that the people of God have a choice to make and the choice to make is, do we believe that our God is sovereign and he is still on his throne? And it has nothing to do with what side you want to vote for or the none of the above selection. It doesn't matter that. There's people in this room who believe different things and are strong opinions on each side of the issue and that's okay. But what's important is that for the community and the church of Christ to understand that on November 9th, Jesus Christ will still be on his throne no matter who's in power because it's not about mankind. Can we be a church who believes that God is still in control? There's a lot of fear right now. Look on social media. <laughs> Look at your friends. Listen to the conversations you're even having. Are you communicating a belief that, you know what? It might seem chaotic. It might seem crazy, but I believe that God's still on his throne. I believe that somehow he's still working and the church of Jesus Christ right now has the opportunity to stand up and to make to show people what it means to be people of peace and people of hope. We shouldn't be the ones who are hopeless right now, by the way. We should be the only ones who have hope and communicate hope because our God is still on the throne. Okay, I'll get off the soapbox. <laughs> and the people of Israel were faced with that. Do you believe that God is still in control even when you face opposition? Do we believe that God still has a plan for his people? Do we today believe that God still has a plan? I don't think God has given up on creation. I think he's calling the church, the followers of Jesus, to still join with him in the ministry of reconciliation. I believe that he's calling us to reach others for his name, to make a difference and transform our community. That's what he's calling us to. His plans haven't changed and his power has not gone away. It might not show, end up the way you thought it would. It might not be the way you think it should be. And it might not be the most Christian-looking 
government on the outside, but the church of Christ can still rise. We have hope. Gabe Lyons says this, in exile is when we learn to trust God. I would extend that to say, in the face of opposition is when we learn to trust God. Is he on his throne? So, here's a question for us. How do we find hope? How can we, because it's easy to say it, right? It's easy to talk about, well, we should have hope, but it doesn't always feel that way. And so I want to throw out a couple verses for you to look at, and we have them on the screen for you. The first one is this. Jesus was speaking, and he says this. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation, or you will have trials. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus Christ is not unaware of the fact that we're going to face opposition, we're going to face trials, that there will be difficult times in your individual life and in the lives of us as a community of faith. There will be difficult times. But can we take heart? Because Jesus Christ has overcome all of that. He reminds us. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, in the world, once you become a follower of me, it's going to get easy. Good news. It's a lot easier now. I already did the hard work. No, it's the opposite. Good news. The world's still messed up. It's still going to be hard. And, oh yeah, the real good news, I've overcome all of that. And there's hope. There's hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. The other thing I want to do, how do we find hope is in this, I kind of want to end with one uh, section here. It's a prayer that Paul has for us. And it's important to know as we go into this, the good news in the book of Ezra, in the Ezra story, is not that God removes the difficulties. The good news is that in spite of the difficulties, those do not thwart the ways of God. The good news in our world isn't that we are removed from all heartache and pain and even temptation and sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ provides a way out of all of that because of the work that he has done. And so here's a, a prayer that Paul gives to us. Another way for us to find hope. And I want you to see this. I have it on the screen for you. Paul prays this for all those who follow Jesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what the hope of calling is, what the hope of his calling is. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So Paul gives this prayer for people and says, you want to know where hope is found? Here's my prayer for you. As followers of Jesus, and he's writing to the church that was going to experience great persecution for their faith. So that's their context. He says, I pray that you may be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of his calling is. When we say that, here's what we mean by hope of his calling. It's an absolute certainty of the victory of God. The hope of his calling is an absolute certainty of the victory of God. It's a belief that says, my past sins, present and future are taken care of in Jesus Christ. The, the ways of the world, no matter how wicked they seem, are going to be ultimately taken care of in Jesus Christ. That God is, there's absolute certainty that there's victory because of what Christ, Jesus has done and what he gives to us. 
The hope of the calling is coming to the point where we can believe that and own that as we walk through life and journey through life. None of you in here are outside of this uh, hope, this absolute certainty that you can experience victory in Jesus. None of you have done anything so bad that God can't redeem it and restore you. None of you will do something so terrible that God cannot redeem it and store it. Even people who are leading our country are not so far away that God cannot redeem them and restore them. No one is. And as followers of Jesus, we need to have this absolute certainty that God brings victory. That's the hope of the calling. The next one is this, the riches of his inheritance. That means the identity as being one of God's own. We find hope when we can really rest in the identity that we are one of God's children. I look at my kids and I think there are times when I even tell them, you're not one of mine, I don't think. (laughs) And when I say I'm going to sell them and put them on eBay, yes, one of them cried one time and said, don't do that, Dad. I'm like, well, it depends on how much money I get. But, um... (laughs) But the truth is nothing they can do will ever make them not my own. I can't imagine anything that they could do to make me say, I don't love you and you're not one of mine. You can disappoint me, you can hurt me, but you're always going to be one of my own. God looks at you and he looks at me with that same belief. We find hope when we can understand that our lives are his. We're his children and he cares about us. Finally, we find hope when it says this, when we understand the greatness of his power. This is a strength from God. In scripture, the way this is worded, it's only used in connection with the strength of God, never the strength of mankind. So when he says, understand the surpassing greatness of the power that's in Christ Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, which was no small task, is available to you and to me today. And this might not mean that we're going to conquer all of our enemies. It might not mean that we're going to get our way and and politically Christians are going to be the ones the world looks to. It might just mean that even in the face of a lot of turmoil and a world that seems to be falling apart, the power of Christ is still alive and around us and calls the church of God to be a, a voice of change and of hope and of peace. And that power is available to us. We're not left on our own. We're in a world where power comes from money and apparently through lying and through um, words and all kinds of stuff, right? But our real power comes from Christ and believing that this God is still on his throne. It's where we find hope as a community. We want Seacoast Church to be a place where the world can look to us and say, what is up, up with you people? You seem to have a peace and a hope that doesn't match with what's happening around us. You seem to interact with people differently. You seem to want to engage in the hardest issues in a way that is compassionate. Your place where broken people are finding hope and life. What is it with that? It's because we believe that ultimately God is on his throne and he has a plan for his people. In the midst of exile or in the midst of opposition, he is on his throne and he has a plan. For his people. So worship team starts making their way up. I, I was trying to think of an illustration that makes it maybe a way that's a little more tangible. And I, as I've shared with many of you before, I'm, I, I love baseball and I'm a huge Boston Red Sox fan. And as all of us should be. And um, as I, 
The Boston Red Sox in 2004 won the World Series, and it was the first time in 86 years that they won the World Series. And that was, a, that was you know, watching them in the playoffs every year was so difficult for me. And my kids know that I, when I watch, especially the Red Sox, I, I tell the TV, I try to communicate to the players through the TV quite often. I think the louder I am, they'll get it eventually. Because I, of course, know better than them. And I wouldn't strike out when they do. But so I, I, I'm always giving advice to the TV and yelling at it. And I remember in 2004, they were in a, a series against the Yankees. And whoever won this series, whoever won four out of seven games, went on to the World Series. They lost the first three. And my wife will tell you. I kept saying, like, I'm so done. I'm never watching them again. I hate the Red Sox. I'm so done with this every year. And so we watched game four. They're losing in game four. And I'd say, this is so stupid. I'm not even watching the game. I'd turn it off. And then I'd go back in 20 seconds later and turn it back on. Like, I just got to see what will happen. Well, they were coming down to it. They were going to lose and be out of the playoffs. So they came back and won that game in 12 innings. And then they won the next game. They came from behind and won the next game. And then they won the next two and went to the World Series and won the World Series. It's a great story. Yes, I cried. And, uh, <laughs> but I look at that and I think that was such an awesome moment. But now, here's the thing about me. I've watched that game four several times since then. <laughs> I just watched it the other day. And I watch it and I know how it ends, but I still get kind of nervous. <laughs> And when Dave Roberts steals that base that leads to the tying run, every time I see it, I'm like, ooh, that was so close. He's lucky. But here's the thing. Even though I, I kind of get nervous, I'm also very excited because I know how it comes out. I know how it ends. And I actually have a lot of peace when I'm watching it, even when it feels like it's falling apart. See, a lot of us go through life and we forget that God's looking at the end of the story. And if only we knew he's watching it from that perspective, saying like, no, he's going to make it. It looks really bad right now, but trust me, this is going to be a great story. He's going to get through. Can we be a community that believes that God is sovereign and he has a plan? He's still in control. He's watching the story and the ending's awesome. The journey might be really painful and hard, but we can rest assured knowing that God has this figured out. We don't have to walk around in despair, without hope, without peace. It's available to us. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this time. And I ask that now as we end, God, would you just speak to us this one last time? Help us be a community of faith that trusts that you are still on your throne and that you are still in control and you have a plan for us. May we be a church, God, that who joins with you in this story. And even in the face of opposition, even in the face of pain, God, would you call out to us? Would you use us to communicate hope, to communicate peace, to bring life that only comes from you? We give you this time now in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us to sing this last song as a sign of unity for what Christ is doing?